Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardio nerds, this is Amit Goyal. Join us on a new adventure as we journey through the maze of clinical practice guidelines. In this series, Decipher the Guidelines, we will take a deep dive into the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines, focusing on similarities and differences from the American guidelines. This is a multidisciplinary collaboration between the Cardiators, the ACC Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease Section, the National Lipid Association, and the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurse Association, developed with a mentorship from Dr. Eugene Yang. And remember, CardioNerds is a fellow-founded, independent educational platform. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Do be a nerd and spread the word on social media and help others find us by rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast platform. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to Section 3.3 and 3.4 of the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines. The question is asked by student Dr. Adriana Mares. Answered first by Brigham and Women's Medicine Intern and Director of Cardiner's Internship, Dr. Gurleen Carr, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Allison Bailey. Dr. Bailey is a cardiologist at Centennial Heart. She is the editor-in-chief of the American College of Cardiology's Extended Learning, or Excel, editorial board and was a member of the writing group for the 2018 American Lipid Guidelines. Dr. Bailey, it's always so great to have you with us. Welcome back to CardioNerds. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here, and I learned so much from you all. Thank you, Dr. Bailey. Well, let's learn some cardiology. Adriana, what question do you have for us? Thank you, Amit. Our question goes like this. Ms. Preeclampsia is a 58-year-old never smoker with a history of hypertension. Her BMI is 29 kilograms per meter squared. She also mentions having preeclampsia during her pregnancy many years ago. She describes a predominantly sedentary lifestyle and works as a receptionist. You see her in clinic to discuss routine preventive care. Her most recent lipid panel results were LDL of 101 milligrams per deciliter, HDL of 45 milligrams per deciliter, and triglycerides of 190 milligrams per deciliter. What additional step will provide valuable information regarding her CVD risk profile? The answer choices are A, send additional lab workup including C-reactive protein and lipoprotein A, B, measure her waist circumference, C, assess her work stress, D, ask her about history of preterm birth, or E, which include B, measure her waist circumference, C, assess her work stress, and D, ask her about history of preterm birth. Dr. Carr, what additional step would you take to determine Ms. Clampsia's CVD risk profile? Thanks so much for the question, Adriana. In this case, I think the correct answer is E, measuring her waist circumference, assessing her occupational stress, and obtaining history about adverse pregnancy outcomes, including preterm birth. I think all of these aspects will add valuable information for CVD risk stratification. So in terms of when we're thinking about BMI, we often use that as an easily measured tool that can be used to define categories of body weight. But it's important to remember that body fat stores in visceral tissue carry higher risk than subcutaneous fat. And therefore, waist circumference can be a simple way to measure global and abdominal fat and can be a better measure than BMI. 
When waist circumference is greater than 102 centimeters in men and greater than 88 centimeters in women, weight reduction is advised, and that's the sum of the cutoffs that are used. These thresholds are recommended by the World Health Organization and are widely accepted in Europe, but it's important to note that there can be different cutoffs depending on ethnicities as well as different guidelines in different parts of the world. The next thing I want to talk about is work stress. So work stress is also important to ask this patient about because there's preliminary evidence of detrimental impact of work stress on ASCVD health, and this is independent of conventional risk factors in their treatment. Work stress can be determined by job strain. So that's a combination of high demands from jobs as well as low control that can occur at work and between effort, reward, and balance that happens with job and work stress. And then finally, in this case, it's also really important to take into account her pregnancy history and ask her about her history of preterm birth. When thinking about pregnancy history, preeclampsia is associated with an increase in cardiovascular disease risk by a factor of 1.5 to 2.7 compared with all women. And both preterm and stillbirth are also associated with a moderate increase in cardiovascular disease risk, with preterm birth having a relative risk of 1.76 and stillbirth a relative risk of 1.5. So taking a thorough pregnancy history is really important in determining future cardiovascular risk in women. The ESC guidelines give a class 2B level of evidence B recommendation that in women with history of premature stillbirth, Periodic screening for hypertension and diabetes may be considered. The 2018 ACCHA guidelines include preeclampsia and premature menopause, which occurs at age less than 40 years as risk-enhancing factors for statin therapy, but actually don't mention preterm birth as a specific risk-enhancing factor. They mention that the mechanism or cause of preterm birth is often unknown, so it's difficult to include it as a risk-enhancing factor. And then coming back to choice A in this question, which is incorrect sending additional lab workup, including C-reactive protein and lipoprotein A. So the ESC guidelines do not recommend using routine circulating biomarkers as they might not necessarily improve risk prediction and publication bias and studies are not as compelling for routine assessment of these markers. And this is a class three level of evidence B recommendation by the guidelines. While some biomarkers like lipoprotein A are promising, further work is still needed. The 2019 ACCHA guidelines do actually include C-reactive protein and lipoprotein A, as well as apolipoprotein B as risk-enhancing factors, and specifically mention elevated C-reactive protein greater than 2 mg per liter and elevated lipoprotein A greater than 50 mg per deciliter or greater than 125 nanomole per liter, or an elevated apolipoprotein B greater than 130 mg per deciliter as risk-enhancing factors. However, it's important to keep in mind that there's specific indications that you would want to measure these biomarkers in. And specific indications for measuring lipoprotein A include family history of premature atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And specific indications for measuring apolipoprotein B is triglycerides that are greater than 200 milligram per deciliter. So overall, one of the main takeaways from this question is that the ESC guidelines do not recommend routine measurement of additional circulating in urine biomarkers as further data and research is still needed in this area, but there are specific situations in which these biomarkers may be warranted as we just discussed. So Dr. Bailey, I would like to turn it over to you to tell us a little bit more about how you think about utilizing biomarkers such as lipoprotein A. I think this is a great question. I think the role of lipoprotein little a in risk stratification is evolving. 
So currently, we don't have any drugs that specifically target lipoprotein little a as a therapeutic strategy, but there are some that are being studied. So I think we're going to hear more and more about this as a potential target for modification of atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk. As you guys already know, lipoprotein little a is an LDL particle that's got an added apolipoprotein A attached to the apolipoprotein B component of the LDL particle. And it's estimated that about 20% of the world's population may have an elevated lipoprotein little a if we were to, you know, test populations, which we currently don't do. We also know that most of an individual's lipoprotein little a level is genetically determined and really is not responsive to lifestyle. And it's pretty stable throughout life. So by age one to two years of age, you have a stable level and it stays the same pretty much throughout your entire life and that it's uh, determined in an autosomal codominant inheritance pattern. Well, uh, there's a lot of obstacles to lipoprotein little a evaluation, but one of the main obstacles is its measurement and target levels are not standardized. So when you start looking at levels, you'll always see them described as either milligrams per deciliter or nanomoles per liter, and that becomes one of the tricky parts when we're going to measure it because it it can be subject to extreme variations in measurement numbers. And so we'll have to come up with that. When I think about measuring a lipoprotein little a in a patient I'm seeing in clinic, uh, I think of people who have a premature history of heart disease without a lot of risk factors. Now, if someone comes in and they tell me, you know, their dad had a heart attack at age 50, but they were a smoker and they were diabetic, and they were obese, uh, that makes me less likely to think of lipoprotein little a versus, uh, you know, my dad had a heart attack at 46. He was a non-smoker, an active guy, and there was really no perceived risk. If someone has a known family history of high lipoprotein little a, that's a, a reasonable person to target. And then those people with familial hypercholesterolemia or those people who don't respond to statins like we would expect them to. Um, Again, I think it's important to remember there's no current data available that treating isolated elevated lipoprotein little a levels leads to better outcomes, which is why it's not recommended to measure these levels as a routine strategy. However, that's changing and there are several drugs in formulation right now. So we're going to keep talking about this. Thank you, Dr. Carr and Dr. Bailey for sharing your insights. There's definitely a lot to learn and glad to have the opportunity to learn about the ESC guidelines with you. Dr. Bailey, I, um, this doesn't have to be part of the recording, or it can be, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm curious about just the trajectory of your career. You know, on the one hand, you're an advanced heart failure and transplant attending, and indeed, we had to reschedule our last recording because you were staffing the CCU on call and had to take care of a patient who was critically ill and cardiogenic shock. And on the other hand, seemingly sort of disparate part of your, uh, a very important part of your career is preventive cardiology, where you're part of guideline writing committees for lipid guidelines and a board member for the ASPC. How did that come to be? Yeah, absolutely. Can you speak about that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, I've always just really liked cardiology, really all parts of cardiology. So when I was going through fellowship, I was really torn about what I wanted to be when I grew up because the idea of not doing one part of cardiology in lieu of doing other parts of cardiology uh, made me sad. So I spent a lot of time doing prevention. So actually, when I left fellowship, I became the I started a cardiac rehab program at uh, my very first faculty job. 
And that was one of the favorite, my favorite parts of my job. And that's really how I got involved in the world of prevention. And so I also staffed the CICU. Um, back in those days, there really wasn't this field of cardiac critical care. And that was just part of uh, the, our role as being a, uh, you know, a house officer. And that was also one of my favorite parts of my job. So I had this, you know, disparate roles where I would see people at their very sickest. Then I would see them back in clinic. And then I would get them into cardiac rehab. And so I really felt like I got to see the full spectrum of all the amazing things we do in cardiology. And while it seems like really different parts, I think they play well together. Um, You know, I, I love doing critical care and spending time in the hospital. But again, I think it's a really hard job. And you know, if I didn't walk over to cardiac rehab and, and see the 29-year-old who suffered a heart attack uh, because of early onset atherosclerotic disease now on the treadmill and having, uh, you know, a normal quality of life and have her four-year-old there, I think my life would be a little harder. Um, you know, I think that when you're interested in a topic, it's easy to stay up to date. Um, I, you know, I read about all of these things, you know, critical care, I think is still a very important part of everything I do. That's been brought to the forefront so much during COVID, uh, when, you know, all of our patients in the hospital had multi, multi-system disease and, and new disorders we'd never seen. Uh, but, you know, prevention remains one of my passions and I, I think, uh, really the key to the future. And so I don't ever get more excited than when I'm talking to my patients about how they can change their lifestyle. And, you know, I had the discussion five times today, you know, I'm meeting you here in the hospital because of the effects of lifestyle, but you and I are going to work together so that we never meet in the hospital again. We see each other in the clinic and we see each other over in the rehab center because rehab is really, really important to your uh, long-term survival. So while it seems like different areas, I think that, um, they really go well together and allow me to have the the sort of the full spectrum of of treating patients that I've always enjoyed. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, you get to see the entire spectrum of cardiovascular disease and take care of patients from primary prevention to end of life care in the CCU. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting perspective to have, and it's like a, a jack of all trades, a master of all. Dr. Bailey, it's so great to spend this time with you, and thank you for uh, teaching us today. Thank you so much. I enjoy these episodes immensely.